This morning's sermon is going to focus on the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 24, which is the account of some of the women who came to Jesus' tomb early that Sunday morning, only to find two angels sitting there proclaiming that Christ had risen from the dead. So that's the passage from which we'll gain most of our thought this morning, Luke 24, 1 through 12. But I actually want to back up a page or so in the Bible and begin reading for you in Luke 23, verse 33. You can find that on page 1055 in those black pew Bibles. And the reason why I want to back up is because though we've come this morning primarily to bask in the sunshine of Jesus' resurrection, I want us to spend a few moments at least soaking in the darkness of his crucifixion as well and remembering what he did when he died on the cross for our sins. So allow me to begin reading there in Luke 23, 33, the account of Jesus' crucifixion, and then I'll continue on first to read and then to comment on the first hints of his resurrection from chapter 24. So Luke 23:33. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus." While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. 
Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Father, we pray that you would cause us to go away today to our homes, marveling at what happened that day as Jesus rose from the dead. Work in our hearts from your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. As we focus our concentration now on chapter 24, I want particularly just to draw your attention to the very first word of the very first verse of that chapter. So fix your gaze just for a moment or two on the word, but at the beginning of Luke 24, 1. It's not often that a single word can make all the difference in the world. It's not every day that three simple letters, B-U-T, can change the course of our entire way of thinking. But in this case, in this context, given what we read in chapter 23, these three simple letters actually are the most marvelous letters, the most marvelous word in the English language. But in this case, we ought to sing for joy, and we do this morning at that word, but at the beginning of verse 1. Think about it. In chapter 23, we read that Jesus, the master of the universe, the friend of sinners, was hung up to die like a common criminal. We read that the great teacher of Israel had finally been silenced. And we read that these things had been done in the most cruel, inhumane, and mocking fashion. Jesus was taunted. Jesus was spoofed. He was challenged. He was accused of being a fraud. And not only had the judgment of sinful men fallen hard upon Jesus back, but more significantly, we also read in verse 44 of chapter 23 that the darkness of God's judgment had fallen on Jesus as well, a judgment that we ourselves deserved for our sins, but which Jesus took willingly on our behalf, in our place. And then we read that this Jesus, our Savior, was buried in a borrowed tomb because none of his 12 closest friends had the courage to come and take his body down from the cross. We read, too, that his burial was completed in such haste that there hadn't even been time to properly clothe his body or to anoint him with the customary perfumes. In short, what we read in chapter 23 was that the most glorious, loving, praiseworthy of human lives had come to a tragic, sad, cold, lonely, humiliating end on that dark Friday evening. But... Luke tells us in chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, everything changed. Yes, on Friday, Jesus had apparently come to a humiliating, disgraceful end, but on the third day, he rose again. On the third day, everything changed. On the third day, the course of human history was cataclysmically altered. Ponder, if you can, where we might all be if the story of Jesus had ended, if the gospel of Luke had ended with chapter 23. We certainly wouldn't be here this morning, would we? If the story of Jesus had ended with his burial in chapter 23, verse 56, history would have simply recorded this Jesus as another charismatic teacher with a Messiah complex. 
people would say, well, Jesus of Nazareth, he was one of those people who said that he was the Messiah. He said he was the Son of God. He claimed to be the Savior of the world, but he died, just like all the other so-called saviors. And that was the end of it. You see, if Luke's gospel and Jesus' life had ended without chapter 24, Jesus would be just another footnote in Jewish religious history. Precious few people would have continued to believe his claim to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. No one would have traveled the world as his disciples would do, spreading the news of a supposed Savior if everyone knew he was dead. And even if a few of the disciples had ventured to do that, who would have believed in this dead Jesus or altered their life because of him? No one. People aren't going to abandon their sinful lifestyles or their cultural religious trappings to follow the claims of a dead Jewish carpenter turned sage, are they? No. And so if Jesus had remained in that tomb, if the story had ended with Luke 23, 56, then Christianity would have ended with Luke 23, 56 as well. And all of us living so far away, both geographically and culturally and chronologically, would probably never have even heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. And we'd likely all still be worshiping stones and trees and statues like our ancient ancestors. But, Luke says at the beginning of chapter 24, the burial of Jesus is not the end of the story. Yes, all Jesus' marvelous claims seem to have gone to the grave with him in chapter 23, but on the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. On the first day of the week, he rose from that grave, and all his claims to be Savior and King and Lord of history and God-made flesh rose with him. Everything changed, beginning with that little word, but, here in Luke 24.1. And because everything changed with the first word of Luke 24.1, there are lots of other buts in the Bible as well. Many of them directly relating to you and to me, if we belong to Jesus. Because of this but, all the other buts, all the other reversals, all the other changes of direction in the Bible are true. Perhaps the greatest of these comes in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul tells us, you, talking to all of us, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, he says. That's where we were apart from Jesus. That's where we are if we're apart from Jesus this morning. We're dead, not physically dead, but dead to a relationship with God, dead spiritually and unable to get back to God by our own efforts, and as good as dead in an eternal sense because the Bible says that eternal judgment hangs over our heads because of the guilt of our sins. So in all these ways, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, he goes on to say in verse 4, and there's that marvelous word again, but, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, we were dead men walking because of our sins, but God. We were dead, spiritually and eternally dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. Did you hear that? It's not just that God made us alive, not just that he forgave our sins and began a new relationship with us and canceled our one-way tickets to eternity and eternity judgment. But Paul says more precisely that God made us alive in all these ways together with Christ. In other words, it's because Christ is alive that we also can be made alive together with him. That wonderful but in Ephesians 2.4 that we can be made alive is contingent upon the but in Luke 24. 
It's only possible for you to be made alive spiritually and eternally because Christ is alive. The possibility of you and I having new life exists only because Jesus received new life first. And we'll come back to these thoughts again before we finish this morning. But for now, what I'm simply trying to say is that the resurrection of Jesus is decisive and pivotal. If he's not risen, or if his resurrection is, as many religious people like to say, just a kind of poetic way of the Bible giving us hope, but not a real literal event. If Jesus is not really, literally, bodily risen from the dead, then we're all sunk. Because all the other buts in the New Testament hinge on this one most significant but here in Luke 24. This is so important. If this but in Luke 24 is poetic and not literal, then how do we know how literally to take all the other buts, all the other howevers in the New Testament? That's an important question for us to consider. So much so that Paul could later write in his first letter to the church at the ancient city of Corinth that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we may as well close up shop on this Christianity thing. Paul understood that all the other buts in the New Testament pivot on this one most important one, in Luke 24. And you know, we desperately need all the other buts and all the other howevers in the New Testament. We need all the other, all the howevers and all the buts that we can get because our lives are so tangled up, aren't they? We all fall so short. We all need so much help. And we see it, even if no one else sees it, you see it in yourself, the help that you need. And the Bible makes no bones about telling us that we need God's help, every one of us. The Bible pulls no punches. The Bible's constantly saying things like you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And if there were no buts, and if there were no howevers in the Bible, if there were no possibility of reversal and restoration and forgiveness and second chances and fresh starts, well then, as I say, we may as well close up shop and even go home right now this morning. If there are no howevers in the Bible for us, then we may as well eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we die. If there are no but gods in the Bible, we may as well give up on God because he has already given up on us. But if there are so many but gods in the Bible, then we need to cling to them with all of our might. And if we want to cling to the but gods with all of our might, we'd better make sure that we cling to this primary foundational but God here in Luke 24.1. If we want to cling to Ephesians 2.4, but God made us alive together with Christ, then we'd better make sure we cling to Luke 24. We'd better make sure that the resurrection of Jesus is not a hoax and not a fable, but a literal, physical, real event. And so with that kind of certainty in mind, I just want to walk you through these verses in Luke 24 and explain why I believe that Luke is giving us thorough, literal, reliable history here. Why I believe that Jesus really did literally, bodily, rise from the dead. As we read, of course, several female followers of Jesus came to the tomb on the first day of the week in order to perfume Jesus' dead body according to the custom of the day. But when they got there, the tomb was obviously empty. And then in order both to drive home and to explain what they had seen, God sent two angels in verses 4 through 8 to announce to these women that they weren't seeing things, that Jesus really wasn't in that tomb, that the tomb really was empty, that he is not here, as they said, but he's risen. Now I know right off the top that by virtue of where and when we were born, most of us tend to 
read passages and things about angels with at least a little bit of a secular scientific tint on our glasses. In fact, you might read verses 4 through 6 and say to yourself, come on now, Luke, let's presume that the tomb really was empty. And maybe there's even a good, perhaps miraculous reason why it was, but angels? That seems a little far-fetched. After all, you might say, I've never seen an angel, and I don't know if I've ever known anybody who has. Maybe that's what some of you are thinking when you read this. So I'll grant you that seeing angels dressed in dazzlingly white clothing does seem strange to our 21st century mindset. It's not an everyday occurrence. For instance, if one of you came up to me after the service today and said that you had seen these same angels standing beside your bed last night, I'd look at you a little bit sideways. And I would probably be a little bit worried about you. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm just being honest at this point. It's not the kind of occurrence seeing angels that most of us are privy to, is it? And so it's a strange thing, and it may throw us off, but hear this well. I take it that Luke is speaking absolute, literal truth when he tells us that these women saw two bright white angels that day at Jesus' tomb. And I'll tell you why I believe him. First, as unusual as we might think it to see two angels let's take into account that this was quite an unusual set of events altogether, right? The angels are actually the least of our problems if we wish only to see the world through the glasses of our finite scientific understanding. Because Luke makes a far more outlandish claim through the lips of these angels, doesn't he? When he tells us that Jesus is literally bodily risen from the dead. So it's not hard to believe in the angels if you believe the rest of the passage. But let me give you a second reason why I believe Luke is being honest to goodness true when he speaks of dazzling angels and an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. And that's because the way in which Luke presents these facts doesn't sound at all like a typical hoax would sound. The details that Luke presents specifically about these female eyewitnesses are far too mundane and even disappointing to raise suspicion that he's making this story up. If he was making this up, it would have gone a lot better than it did for these women. And along these lines, I want to point out specifically that like most of us, these women did not wake up that morning expecting to see two angels. When they got up at early dawn that Sunday to go to the tomb, this is the last thing that they expected. In other words, Luke doesn't tell us, but on the first day of the week, filled with faith, the women came to the tomb to hug Jesus' neck and congratulate him for rising from the dead. No. Instead, what Luke records in verse 1 is that these women went carrying spices, not for a resurrection celebration, but actually for a burial ceremony. These women fully expected to arrive at the tomb and to find a dead body, just like they had left things a few days before. And even once they saw the stone rolled away and the tomb empty in verses 2 and 3, it wasn't as though now the light bulb all of a sudden came on and they began to say to one another, Oh yeah, I remember now Jesus kept telling us he was going to rise from the dead. That's not what happens either, is it? Instead, we're told in verse 4 that the empty tomb perplexed them. They didn't get it. They didn't know what to make of all this. And when the angels appeared, these ladies were just as thrown for loop in verse 5 as you and I would be if these two men came and stood on either side of this pulpit right now. And so what I'm trying to say is that these women, faithful as they were to come and prepare Jesus' body for its final rest, were not bright, bold examples of faith in the supernatural. They'd forgotten all about the resurrection promises. Indeed, at first, they scarcely believed what their eyes were seeing. So they weren't heroines of undoubting faith in any sense of the word. And I point that out simply so that I might ask, 
if you are going to make up a hoax about Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to his followers as the victorious reigning king, would you write it like Luke writes, Luke 24, 1 through 12? Would you present Jesus' followers as being so thick-headed and his promises as being so thoroughly ignored? Or would you rather, if you were making up the story, say, on the first day of the week, all the disciples, not just the women, all the disciples were outside the tomb singing hymns and quoting the prophecies to one another, waiting for Jesus when suddenly Jesus emerged from the grave to the great joy and anticipation of the hundreds gathered round about. That would make a much better story, wouldn't it? And if you were writing the story just to write a good story, you might write it that way. So do you see, if you're fabricating the resurrection story, you would write it quite differently than Luke wrote it. And as an important aside, if you are fabricating the resurrection story in ancient Jewish culture, a very male-dominated culture, you certainly would not make your key eyewitnesses a bunch of poor women from Galilee. Your star witnesses to the resurrection would most definitely be men and probably prominent men to boot. And they'd certainly not be people from backwoods, religious backwoods Galilee. But Luke doesn't call forward the kinds of witnesses we'd expect. When he reports the resurrection of Jesus, Luke presents the most unlikely witnesses. And he presents them, in fact, as initially having very little faith in Jesus' resurrection at all. So little faith, in fact, that they had to have two angels show up to them in verses 6 through 8 and interpret for them that which they should have already known and believed from the lips of Jesus. And as I say, the only reason that you would make poor backwoods, confused, doubting women, your star witnesses, for such an important piece of history is if they really were the witnesses, as, as if this really was the way that it all went down. And so I conclude by the unlikely, unflashy way in which Luke records these events that he must have simply been telling us what happened. He must be a reliable historian. He's not presenting history as he thinks we want to hear it. He's not reshaping history to try to make it more believable. He's simply telling it like it was. These things must really have happened just as Luke reports them. And to add strength to that case, consider also that Luke begins naming names in verses 10 through 12. He doesn't simply leave us with a vague discussion about some unknown women who supposedly saw Jesus' tomb empty and saw that he was risen from the dead. No, what he actually does is to come out and name some of them in verse 10. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. And the reason why that naming of names is so important is because Luke wrote this gospel somewhere around 60 A.D., just 30 years after these events had happened. His gospel was written, in other words, during a time when people could have looked up these facts and looked up these women. Skeptics could have tracked these ladies down to see if their stories matched Luke's story and really to see if their stories matched one another. Isn't that how you try to find out if witnesses are reliable? You go and you find the witnesses and see if their stories match. And if all their stories match, well, then you've got reliable history. So naysayers could have come to these women. They could have examined their character to see if they were unstable or if they were known to be liars or fools. Anyone could have followed Luke's breadcrumbs to see if what he recorded here in his gospel would sync up with other verifiable facts. And Luke not only seems undaunted by the prospect of people 
trying to sync up his facts, but he actually appears to be giving his detractors a head start. What he seems to be doing in verse 10 is saying to his initial first century readers, if anyone would like to ask further questions or check my facts, let me just give you a list of the eyewitnesses. Let me name some names. And of course, he not only names these ladies, but he names Peter in verse 12 as well. And the effect of naming these names is simply for Luke to invite a thorough double-checking of his record. And when a historian, historian or any other workman seems unafraid of having people snoop around checking his work, that lends credence to that work, does it not? If a restaurant invites you to see what goes on in their kitchen, it makes you feel a lot better about the quality of their food, doesn't it? That's why most of them don't allow you to do that. But if they did, you would say, well, they must know what they're doing. They must be confident in what they're preparing. Or if a, a car salesman volunteers, as they say in the commercials, to show you the Carfax, it gives you some sense that he's confident in what he's selling. And by the same token, when a historian footnotes things the way Luke does, when a historian is willing to name names, to give out the identities of his eyewitnesses, especially when those eyewitnesses are still alive, it leaves you with a strong impression that he is not afraid for anyone to come and snoop around his work because he knows that the work is impeccable. Huckster historians are always very wary of naming names and giving dates and marking specific places. They have unknown sources or anonymous sources and so on. And the reason for that is because if they start naming names and naming places, people can more easily check their records and find out that they're fabricated. So hucksters, smart hucksters anyway, always speak in vague generalities. But Luke doesn't feel the need to do that. Luke apparently knows that his facts are correct, and so he doesn't mind naming names, and he doesn't mind putting information out there that anyone reading his gospel in the first century could have double-checked for accuracy. And thus, I conclude all the more strongly that Luke is a trustworthy historian. I have no doubt in my mind that what he records here in chapter 24 and throughout his gospel is reliable fact. We can believe Luke's carefully recorded history just as much as if two angels presented themselves in our midst this morning to give us these very same facts. Now, some of you perhaps are still working through these things. That's why I spend the time to go through them. Some of you may be still trying to come to terms with doubts or questions that you have concerning the reliability of the biblical history. And I'd encourage you to continue your quest if that's you. I'd encourage you, in fact, to make a careful study of the book of Luke just to read it through slowly and ask yourself if this Luke writes like someone who is a purveyor of religious hoaxes or if he gives details, naming names and pinpointing places and so on, that sound like the way a real historian would present his information if he were unafraid of having someone check his work. Read it and just ask yourself if Luke really comes across as a reliable historian. And if he does, then I urge you to take his history seriously. So I say some of you may be still sorting through these questions about the Bible's reliability as a historical document. But others of you, probably most of you this morning, have little or no doubt about these things. In other words, many of you this morning are feeling like I'm simply preaching to the choir. You don't need convincing that Jesus really did bodily rise from the dead. You believe that. You are certain about that. But let me point something out to you. When the early followers of Jesus determined that Jesus really was who he said he was, when they realized that he was not simply a great teacher who lived and died, but that he was risen and was the king of the universe, 
That fact changed everything for them. You see them here in chapter 23 and in chapter 24, timid and shying away from courage and really afraid and quiet. But as you read on, beginning in chapter 24, everything changes because they now know Jesus really is alive. We see hints of it even here in the beginning of this chapter. When these women realized that Jesus really was alive, they began boldly speaking about him to the apostles, even though the apostles initially thought they were out of their heads. And when Peter saw the empty tomb, he went away marveling at it. And as you read on, again, after their initial shock turned into a settled certainty about the resurrection, these men and women were even eventually willing to die for their faith. Why? Because they had come to grips with a reality that was even more ultimate than life itself. If Jesus Christ, this historical teacher, healer, man who claimed to die for our sins, is really alive, if he's really alive bodily, physically, then that is more important than life itself. Everything changes if you believe this. Jesus is real. He's alive. He's king. And if he is risen from the dead, if he is king of the universe, we cannot ignore him. We must not ignore him. And yet the truth of the matter is that many people who believe that Jesus is alive in their heads are ignoring him. Some of you in this room largely are ignoring him. Now, I want to say that kindly, and I want to say it sympathetically because I spent much of my growing up life in exactly the same position, knowing all these things in my head but ignoring Jesus six days a week and often on the seventh day as well. So I I want to say it kindly, I want to say it sympathetically, but I have to say it. Some of us are convinced that Luke was right. Some of us never lie awake at night wondering if the Bible is really true and if there really was a man named Jesus and if he really did rise from the dead. And yet, though we would testify before a judge that we believe what I've been saying this morning, some of us are actually living as though Jesus had stayed in that tomb. Though we know better, some of us are living in the same way as the people that we work with and go to school with who think that Jesus was just another historical figure who came and was interesting and said some neat things and then died just like everyone else. For some of us, the fact that Jesus is king is not evident in the way that we're choosing to spend our days. The fact that he's alive is scarcely on our radar screens until we get into a jam. And that's not right. It's simply not right. You either have to choose to believe that this Jesus is a hoax and a charlatan, or if he's really who he says he is and Luke says he is, then everything has to change for you. The fact that he is alive has to change you. And you know, it's really a worse position to believe that Jesus is alive and to largely ignore him. That's a worse position to be in this morning than if you came and admitted that you think this whole resurrection thing is a hoax. At least the skeptic is consistent. He believes it's a hoax, and so he lives like it's a hoax. But to say that Jesus is alive, to say that we believe in the hope of Easter, and then to live as though Jesus were largely irrelevant to the rest of the year is a great contradiction. And so I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself two questions. And I want you to ask these questions whether you're here 52 Sundays a year or whether you're here today for the very first time. Questions that I've had to ask myself and have to continue to do so. Two questions. Number one, do I really believe this stuff? And number two, if I do, does my life show it? 
Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and is reigning today as king of the universe, sitting at God's right hand as the only savior for sinners? Is that what I would say if I were asked by a coworker tomorrow at the office? Yeah, I believe Jesus is really alive. And if so, would that same coworker be able to discern that you believe Jesus is really alive and king of the universe without having to ask you? simply by the way that you choose to live your life. Is it obvious, in other words, that Jesus Christ is king in you? Now let me remind you why that's such an important question. Do you remember what we said at the very beginning of our study this morning? One reason why Jesus' resurrection is so important is because it is the foundation for our resurrection. If we hope to have new life, If we hope to be right with God, if we want our sins to be forgiven and our slate to be wiped clean, if we are going to be alive to God now and alive with God forever, all of that will only be true because Jesus is literally bodily alive. Remember Ephesians 2.4? God made us alive together with Christ. So... The point of discussing Jesus' resurrection and demonstrating its factuality is not simply that we all might be able to nod our heads in agreement. The point of believing in the resurrection is not simply so that we will all be up to speed on historical facts. No. The point of you believing in the resurrection of Jesus is so that you might undergo a resurrection of your own. So that you might become a new man or woman or boy or girl. That's the point. The point of believing in the resurrection of Jesus is so that you might be made alive together with him, as Paul says. And so simply to believe in your head that Jesus is real and alive and king of the universe is not enough. The devil believes that. And so do lots of people who will spend eternity separated from Jesus. Believe it in their head, and therefore head knowledge of the resurrection is finally valuable to you only insofar as it takes hold also in your heart and makes you yourself alive together with Christ. And that's really what I'm asking when I encourage you to ask yourself whether your life matches up with what your head says about this Jesus. Is it obvious to you that you really have been made alive together with Christ? If not, then you should be concerned. And so should I. Because we're not born alive to God. That's Paul's point in Ephesians 2. The reason why we have to be made alive is because we're not alive to God naturally. We're physically alive, but spiritually we're dead to God because of our sins. We're dead to a relationship with God. We're dead to eternity with God. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll wholeheartedly agree with the apostle. I mean, it seems harsh for him to say, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But if we're honest, many of us will say, he's right. I know that something's not right in my soul. I sense my deadness to God. I can tell that my desires are sinful. I can see my self-centeredness. I can see the futility of the way I'm living my life. When we get a few moments of clarity, in other words, our hearts confirm that Ephesians 2 is true. We really are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the status of every man and woman and boy and girl apart from Jesus. We are alienated from God and we deserve only judgment from his hand because of our sins. But... (laughs) There's that word again. But the message of the Bible from cover to cover is that God loves sinners. And God wants more for sinners than alienation and judgment. 
So much does he love us, in fact, that he sent his own son into the world to live without sin, so that having no sins of his own for which he had to die, he might absorb the punishment that our sins deserve. God sent his son to absorb the punishment that we deserve. That's what Luke 23 is describing. That's what Luke 24, 7 is about as well. Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified because that's what we deserved in return for our turning our backs on God and living life our own way and for our own selfish ends. We deserve death and judgment, but Jesus took it for us so that we don't have to. And that's wonderful news. We can be forgiven our sins because Jesus died for our sins in our place. But the point this morning especially is that this wonderful news, as we've been saying, doesn't only involve Jesus' death. The news continues on with and is incomplete without the resurrection and all the resurrection's implications in our lives. Let me say that again. The good news this morning isn't only about Jesus' death. In fact, the good news is incomplete without the resurrection of Jesus and all the implications of that resurrection for us. The good news says that when we are forgiven our sins, we're also made alive together with Christ, that we're made alive eternally, that we're made alive to right relationship with God, that we are made alive to a new set of opportunities and goals and desires and habits and even spiritual abilities, that we, when we come to Christ, are given a new lease on life and made altogether different and better people. That's good news, isn't it? We need that. The good news is is this, not just that Jesus is alive, but that because he died the death we deserve and he rose from the dead on the third day, we may be made alive together with him. But have you been? Have you been forgiven your sins? Have you begun this friendship with God where you walk with him day by day? Are you a wholly new person because of Jesus? And if not, Won't you get by yourself this afternoon somewhere and call out to the Lord to forgive you your sins and to make you new and to clean your slate and to make you alive together with Christ, both spiritually alive and eternally alive? I hope, I hope that you've been convinced this morning that Jesus really is alive. And if you're still searching, I hope you'll continue to do so until you are convinced. In fact, I'd be glad to help you in any way I can. But once you become convinced, and many of you have been, once you accept the historical accounts of Jesus' resurrection, the question shifts. And the new question, that new question is the one that I've been asking and the one I want to leave you with this morning. The historical record very clearly says that Jesus is alive. But the question this morning is, are you? Are you? 